This episode of the Game Changing Attorney podcast is intended for mature audiences only. I mean it. This isn't the podcast to listen to with kids in the car. It is presented unfiltered, and I hope you will listen to it with an open mind. We all do dumb shit in our 20s. Some people do not that dumb shit. Some people do really dumb shit. I tended towards the really dumb shit category. The difference between me and anyone else is I wrote it down. That's Tucker Max, four-time New York Times bestselling author and co-founder of Scribe Media. I took so much shit. And granted, I'm not trying to make myself out to be a victim. I stoked those flames for attention. I rode that wave. I provoked a lot of it. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Tucker Max to discuss his rise to fame, the price he paid for it, and how he's grown as a person over the last 10 years. It was rough, dude. I didn't realize how traumatic it was until years later. Like, I didn't realize the price that I paid. For that fame and that notoriety, it was not free. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. When you mention the name Tucker Max, you often get a polarizing response. Some love him and others can't stand him. But there's no denying that he's built a successful career, including landing multiple simultaneous spots in the New York Times bestseller list, being nominated to Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential list, and founding a successful publishing business of his own. I went to Duke on an academic scholarship. I'm a white guy who went to a top 10 law school on an academic scholarship. And in fact, they weren't the only school who offered one. Penn also offered one. At the time, Penn was like number eight and Duke was number nine in the rankings or Duke was 10, something like that. And so it was like the bottom of the top 10 were giving me money. And then like, you know, UVA and Harvard were like, yeah, you can come, but you're paying full price and you're lucky to get in. (laughs) And so I was like, fuck you guys, I'll take the money. Yeah, I went to Duke and then I realized like most people that come from good schools, And I'm taking a veiled shot at people who didn't go to good schools. Most people who come from good schools realize that law school is bullshit. Like it is three years of complete bullshit that you don't need to go to class. You can literally read the textbook two weeks before the exam. You don't even have to do that. Although that that will make sure you get at least a 3-0. It got so preposterous for me in law school. This is a true story. You can ask my friends about this. This is true. I bet them I could walk into any exam as long as someone who went and took notes, gave me their notes like two days before the exam that I could review their notes and I would get at least a two five. That was the bet. And so my friends, like the assholes they were, picked fed tax, right? Federal tax, which is like the hardest class in law school. And I was like, okay, I'm not gonna go. Like if my exam had been pick your professor out of a crowd, I would have failed, right? I didn't actually know the professor's name. But um, went in with uh, uh, my buddy's notes. I got a 2.7 or 2.8 in Fed tax. I almost got a 3L, which is like in Fed tax, like that's ridiculous, right? But the whole system's BS. And I figured that out pretty quickly. I spent a whole semester in Mexico living in Cancun and working there um, and then just came back for the exams and then got like a 3-1 that semester. And then I, I ended up getting fired from my first job at Fenwick & West, which is you know one of the big Silicon Valley law firms in two and a half weeks from being a summer associate, which is like impossible. And I got fired from it. And so then uh, didn't take the bar which like the whole thing is ridiculous to me. You go to law school for three years and then you have to pay more money to take the class that teaches you how to take the test to be a lawyer. Like what the fuck was I doing for three years, right? It's a total racket. Every lawyer's like, yeah, yeah, dude, I know this. Like speed up. We all know that this is a racket. And then it was like one of those things where, okay, I could still go be a lawyer. I could take a bar and, and but I would have to like, be a prosecutor or be a JAG attorney or one of those like no big firm was hiring me. I was because no one gets fired from summer associate. I did. And then I wrote an email to all my friends about it. That was funny. 
And then my friends are assholes. So they forwarded it to all their friends and it became like the legal forward of the year. And so like everyone at every firm got a copy. And so everyone knew who I was before I graduated from law school. So no one, I wasn't good. No firm was taking me. I was untouchable. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm not going into the law because <laughs> I'm not going to go be a JAG attorney. Nothing, bless their hearts, but I'm just not like, it's just not my thing. And so um, I went to work for my dad. He owns uh, a bunch of restaurants in South Florida. Like I'm Jewish. And if you're Jewish, you have probably grandparents who live in Boca. You've been to Max's Grill. That's my dad's. That's my family. It's my dad's restaurant. It's so funny. Everyone who's Jewish is like, oh my God, of course I've been to your dad. Like uh, we don't have Judaism in common. We have a restaurant in common. And so uh, anyway, my dad fired me from the family business. Took me longer than two and a half weeks. It was uh, six months. But I didn't make it a full year with my f- working for my family's business when my name is on the door. So after that, my friends were like, yeah, you're not so good at the things you've trained for. But like I was writing these emails to my friends and they were like, this is the funniest shit we've ever read. At least a few of them were. So I started like I tried to get published. No one wanted to publish me like not one agent or publisher in New York. This is like early 2000s, 2001, 2002. And so I put my stuff on the internet. And this is back before the word blog existed. And it blew up. Then long, long story, meandering story short, uh, publisher comes back to me. I get a book deal, comes out in 06. That becomes, uh, it hit the New York Times bestseller for two weeks, then fell off for like uh, almost a year. No, more than a year, came back on and spent five years on the New York Times bestseller list. And that book was, I hope they serve beer in hell, which has done two, three million in sales. And then I wrote three more like that. And then now I'm on this podcast. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well look, I, before this, you said nothing was off limits. So I'm going to go there. But when you said you wrote some stuff and you made some people laugh, I mean, I'd love to ask you about this because a lot of what you were chronicling was things you know, like your drinking encounters and sexual encounters. And you were putting it up online, originally on the website and then eventually in the book. But what led you down that path, essentially, to make that public? I really wish I could tell you that like, oh, at 18, I had a master plan and insights and I'm such a genius that I orchestrate all this. None of that is true. Like I have careened like a pinball around reality and things that I found work, I picked those up and I ran with them. When I was working for my father, right before I got fired, I was, I hated my job because I was living in South Florida, which is like the armpit of America, especially then. It's better now, but like it was a dirty toilet then and now it's a cleaner toilet. It's still a toilet, South Florida. And so it's like the cultural wasteland. And so the only people in South Florida are either old people, Cubans, or uh, people who are uh, uh, on drugs. Basically, that's it, right? And like, I like old people, but not a lot in common for me when I'm in my 20s. Cuban people are fantastic. I love them. I didn't speak Spanish, though. Not really my culture, right? Nothing against them. And then I don't do drugs. So like, I had no one (laughs) in South Florida that I could really get along with and associate with. Like, I really didn't. I just drank a little bit and only like for fun. And so I hated my life. And then, of course, I was working a job, like family business. It was a restaurant business, the worst. I hated every aspect of it. And so it was like, okay, this is terrible. And uh, I didn't know what to do. And so I would write emails to my friends. Like, I would get drunk anyway and hook up with terrible girls, South Florida girls. But my friend, those emails were hilarious. And my friends loved them. And so I kept writing them. And then when I got fired, literally one of my friends, he is now actually a, a senior editor at the website Real Clear Politics. He's like one of the guys there. At the time, he wasn't. He was a lawyer. But um, he's like, dude, these emails you've written are the funniest things I have ever read. Like, this is what you're supposed to go do. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not a bitch. Only bitches are writers. <laughs> He's like, well, maybe you're a bitch because this is the thing you're the best at in the world is writing funny emails about, Michael, all I did, we all do dumb shit in our 20s. Some people do not that dumb shit. Some people do really dumb shit. I tended towards the really dumb shit category. The difference between me and anyone else is I wrote it down. That's it. That's truly it. Like, if you had a crazy time in your 20s, whether it was college, post-college, early 30s, whatever, you'd read my stories and be like, oh, yeah, I did close enough stuff. Or he was just like me and my friends. Or I was crazier than him. I just wrote it all down, right? And it was funny. And people liked it. 
And so there was no plan to this, man. It's like, I got fired from being a lawyer and I got fired by my dad from my family business. So it's like, I didn't have a lot of other options. (laughs) And this thing I was doing was working and it just ended up being, I was one of the first people to kind of catch a wave, right? Like my book was the first book that went from blog to book to New York Times bestseller. Number one, the first one. There was another one that did it the same week as mine or the week after, which was the that woman who cooked all the Julia Child's recipes on a blog, right? Julia to Julia. It became a movie too, just like my book. Like she and I were like the first two and we were like simultaneous basically. And like now it's like a super common thing. Shit, tons of books come off the internet. It's not even a thing anymore. I was the first, right? Like the word blog didn't exist when I started writing. And the only reason this all worked is because honestly – I had no other options that I thought were plausible or I wanted to do. I just took the ball and ran with it, man. Like, I wish I could give you, oh, here's my six lessons and here's the magic. And sometimes it re- you really do fall ass backwards into something. Now, I, granted, I had to work my ass off on this. It was really hard. I had years where, like, I wasn't making any money. Where like the reason I was eating protein is because I was dating a girl who would buy me food, right? Like, I mean, like there was a lot of struggle to get from, I'm going to put my stories on the internet in 2002 to New York Times bestseller in 2006. And even after that was not like, there was still a lot of struggle after having a New York Times bestseller. Oh, two to six was the worst. I mean, that was a 40 year stretch of like awfulness. But all of us who started businesses or been artists or creatives or anything, we all know. I mean, I'm sure you had a hard times. I know you had hard times at the beginning of your company. Like I've heard about them. You told me, you know, mine were just a little different because it wasn't a company. It was being a writer. And, you know, I, I feel that many times not enough is, let's say, said about what that mental journey is like, because I mean, to your credit, you wrote four New York Times bestsellers. At, at the same time, I think you were the only person along, I think with, with four people to have three books on the New York Times bestseller list at one time. And I think the other ones were like, what, Malcolm Gladwell? Malcolm Gladwell, Brene Brown, Michael Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah that. And then I think in 2009, you got on Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People list. So, I mean, that, that's incredible. So I, I guess your dad who fired you from the restaurant, I'm wondering what he's thinking during this time. And then also what's going through your mind this time? How's this impact? You. Man, it's hard to relate now. I'm 45 now, right? That happened when I was like 25 to 30. That whole period is about 25 to 33. I was such a fundamentally different person then. I was so disconnected emotionally from my myself, my body, my everything. I was such a different person. But basically, it wasn't a lot of stopping and thinking, man. It was like when you are in the deep end of the ocean, and you don't have anything to cling to, you don't have a lot of time to stop and contemplate, right? Or to come up with a plan. You're just struggling to keep your head above water. And that really was like, that was my reality at that point. Even after the book became a bestseller, like it was on the best New York Times bestseller list for two weeks. And then it fell off. And then it was still a long slog for it to get come back on. And there was still a lot of stuff to happen, man before it you know started selling millions of copies and before there was a movie about it and then like like there was so much stuff and so much of it was like looking back man it was like i don't know if you you ever known anyone like this or you've gone through this stage but like you get to a stage of success and you're able to kind of decompress a little and slow down a little bit and like feel into yourself a little bit more and then you look back and you were like, Jesus Christ, I was in a traumatized panic for years. <laughs> right? And you can't even realize it until you kind of have some success. Or That's really what that period was like for me, dude. Honestly, I, I wish I could paint it another way to make it look more glamorous or something, but it wasn't. It was traumatized panic and a deep struggle to find something that would work and that would help me push away my grief and my sadness and all the other stuff I didn't want to feel. What about, I mean, during all, all of this time of success, like what about the people around you? You know, what, what was that network like? Because I imagine like there's probably a lot of people coming out of the woodwork with all the success that you're having, all the attention, especially the movie. You know, it's funny. There were definitely a lot, right? But it wasn't as much as you would think because I was very much like, a, I played the gadfly archetype, right? I had a lot of women definitely who came to me, which was awesome on one hand, right? And then on the other hand, it's like, once you start to realize, oh, wow, they're coming to me like 
because they want to be abused or they want to be hurt or they have real weird associations with me, then it's like, oh, this isn't as cool as I thought it was at the beginning. Like that was the weirdest thing for me, man. It wasn't, I'm pretty good at repelling hangers on. I'm not the best at it. I had a few of those, definitely. Not that many, man. Like I don't have an entourage. I don't have any of that. Those are for people who are deeply insecure, don't believe they deserve it. Things like that, or people who came up with a crew and they bring their crew with them, right? And the crew helps. I had neither of those. For me, it was mainly like all men. Most of what we do is uh, so women will like us. And I liked women. And so like a lot of women liked my books and uh, many of them like wanted to hook up or came to me. And it was just like my books represented a certain, they told the story of a guy in his 20s being a guy in his 20s, drinking, partying, hooking up, total reckless abandon. And that was, they were all true stories. That was my real life. It's how I really was. But then everyone, everyone projects their own stuff onto that, right? So like some people would read it and be like, oh, this guy's just like me. And then like, they would be just, and we'd meet and it was like, cool. Other people, like, it was so weird, man. I had so many people who thought like, I had a lot of girls who came to me and would like want to hook up, like groupies, all this stuff, right? And they would get mad that I didn't treat them worse. Like it was, it was truly mind-boggling to me. Like some of them, like really some dark stuff, man. They, like they were into very dark stuff. And I'm like, honey, that's cool. I'm not into that, right? There was a lot of that, man. Everyone, I have a lot of famous friends. And they all say that. Some of them get hangers on, but the thing you definitely get when you get any amount of notoriety, right? Like, uh, you know, my fame was bigger than most people, but not like Tom Cruise or LeBron James, right? Is that no one looks at you like you are. They objectify you. Every hot girl has been, at least at one point, been the hottest girl in the room. And everyone's looked at her and kind of every woman's like measuring herself against her and every guy's trying to get with her, that kind of dynamic. Most guys don't understand what that's like. Because even if you're the hottest guy in the room, you're still the dude. <laughs> like, no one cares. No one cares. And like, there's a few got Brad Pitt or somebody. But most guys, like the best looking guys for the most part are still kind of ugly. And we still, like the guys with the best game still have to like try hard to do well with women or to succeed at life or whatever, right? When you become famous as a dude, it's a dynamic shift that is so weird and so different and so unlike anything else that happens anywhere, right? And it, it can be a micro fame. Like I've talked to, I know professors who are very famous in like their little academic field. And then outside their academic field, like no one cares, right? But that dynamic's still the same, like at their conferences for their little field. So it's the same dynamic. And it's that people don't look at you as you are. People look at you for what you can get them. That's a, the definition of objectification, right? And so my whole life became that for a while. And it was very, very, very weird. It started to cause me to resent my success and my fame because like I was not interacting with anyone on a human level. Everything was transactional, not because I was that way, but because they would interact with me that way. And it was, dude, it was exhausting, man. It really is. It sucks. Like there's a reason famous people hang out together and it's not because they're in some cool secret club, man. I, I know tons of them. It's because they can hang out with each other. They all understand that dynamic and they can to some extent leave it at the door with each other. And so they can be kind of peers with each other, right? It's sort of like why, I, I you know, uber wealthy like to hang out, it's not because they like other uber wealthy people. It's because their level of consciousness and the problems they have and the issues they have are not understandable to anyone else, right? Because you think if you're poor, you're like, well, how can you be rich and have problems? That doesn't even make sense to you. And you're rich, you're like, motherfucker, I have way more problems than you. Because <laughs> I have more. It's the same thing. Fame works the same way, man. I know it sounds like so ridiculous. If you have not had experiences at all, you're probably listening to this thinking, what is this guy bitching about? This is such a rich white person problem, right? I get it. You could not have convinced me when I was poor and anonymous that these would be problems, but they are, you know, it's just how it works.
So as all of this was happening, obviously there, there came a point or maybe a series of moments where you're at a place and you're saying, I'm no longer the same person I was when I started writing those stories and I was writing those books. But was there a pivotal moment where you just had to detach from it? You mean detach or stop? They're different things. Maybe both. Yeah. There was a point where I was the focal point for a lot of anger and a lot of hatred and rage from a lot of the media. And it, like, it might be hard now in 2020 to imagine what the world was like in 2006, 2007, 2008, but I don't care what anyone thinks. Clear as day, the progressive woke mindset is the dominant ideological frame in media right now. Good or bad, it's just true, right? And if you discount that, there's one piece of evidence, real clear. The sitting president just got deplatformed because he's conservative. And you may hate his ideas, and then there's plenty of reasons to. You may think it's a good decision. Okay, cool, or not. But the point is, he got deplatformed. So there's no arguing that the dominant ideological frame in the American media and tech is progressive woke mindset. 15 years ago, that was not true. 15 years ago, it was still the right. It was still religious fundamentalism. The strains of religious fundamentalism, Puritanism, and, and that conservative ideology was the dominant ideological force. And I came up right as it was starting to shift from one side to the other. And it was, I can remember early on in my career, the people that hated me, you guys, you may be old enough to remember Tipper Gore, right? Do you remember when Democrats hated rappers? Tipper Gore literally led the whole thing to like put uh, explicit labels on rap albums. That was a, a sitting vice president's wife. Like think how unthinkable that would be today, 15 years later, <laughs> unthinkable. I came up in that period right? Where like the people who hated me the most were on the right. There were some on the left, but it was mainly the right. 15 years ago, the left was still free speech, free expression, right? And I've seen the shift, the ideological shift. It's the craziest thing, right? Right in front of my eyes. I've been in the forefront of media, but like 07 to 09, I was, that was like 09 at peak when I was on Times 100 Most Influential list. I took the brunt of the rage of the rise of the progressive left, like Gawker and those people, which that was really how the progressive left started. That, those were one of the outlets, hated my guts, hated me because I was unapologetically masculine. I rejected all kind, all the stuff that like became progressive wokeism. Uh, like I rejected a lot of that, right? But also, I rejected the like sexual conservative more. So I took the rage of both sides. It was really fucking weird, man. Like both, both sides hated my guts, which I thought would make me a hero, but it didn't. It ended up making me like an anti-hero. So I mean, millions of people love me. Every college, high school, all bought my books, everyone, military, they're all cops, all love me. But like, like the so many in the media hated my guts. And so like for a good five years, I took so much shit. And granted, I'm not trying to make myself out to be a victim. I stoked those flames for attention. I rode that wave. I provoked a lot of it, right? A good, a huge amount of it, honestly, I provoked. It was a dance with two people and I was fully participating. But yeah, dude, it was really fucking weird, man. It was really weird to have like all these people who had these opinions about me as a person who clearly had never read any of my stuff, had no idea what I stood for or what I said in my books. I was just, again, it was objectification, but instead of positive objectification, it was negative. I was an object for them to signal against, right? You see it all over the place now. Like the ideological balkanization of America is in full force now. It was just starting then. And I was a gadfly for a lot of people to do that, man. And it was, it was rough, dude. I didn't realize how traumatic it was until years later. Like I didn't realize the price that I paid. For that fame and that notoriety, it was not free. I didn't realize it at the time, the price I was paying. So looking back at that, do you believe that you, you would grow and change because of that you know, criticism or pressure that you faced or was it for different reasons? No, no, because the criticism, it was not criticism. It was bullshit. So I was a soldier, an unknowing soldier in an ideological war that was starting. 
that I didn't realize. And I, I figured out the game. I figured out how to get a lot of attention, right? And I figured out how to play that game for attention, but I was playing it at a relatively shallow level. I understand the game much, much deeper now. I didn't really understand it that well. Then I thought I did, but I didn't. And so, like, I thought, oh, yeah, all these people can say all this shit about me, can criticize me. It doesn't matter, right? And in a sense, that's true. But, like, it did matter to me at the time. I was lying to myself. It mattered a lot. And so my I've grown immensely over the last 10 years, not because of the criticism. The criticism was fucking stupid. It was ridiculous. I mean, there's whatever side you want to pick. You want to pick the rights criticism. You know, you shouldn't be having premarital sex. Abortion's wrong. That's all fucking ideological bullshit. It's got nothing to do with me. And the other side was the same. It was he hates women. He blah, blah. Bullshit. None of that's true. It's got nothing to do with me. That's just I was a template upon which they were virtue signaling. It had nothing to do with me. The stuff that forced me to grow was my own development. Right. It was my own like, okay, at some point uh, you've got to realize you don't have to, but I had to realize. I'll tell you the exact. I remember there was a girl that I uh, hooked up with for a while. She really wanted me to be seriously violent with her during sex. Like we were obviously in a relationship. This is consensual, of course. This felt like she really wanted me to hurt her, truly actually hurt her. And without going too much into details, that was really the moment. And she was like angry at me that I wasn't beating her hard enough. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, I got mad at her, right? But then I realized, what am I mad at her for? Like, she wants that. Okay, fine. One, that says something about me and the messages I'm signaling and sending into the world. And two, what does it say about me that I'm mad at her I put those messages in the world. I'm mad that she responded to them. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. I'm in this situation because I created it. I didn't create her. I didn't make any choices for her. But like we were in a consensual relationship. It goes both ways, right? And so that was really the girl that like opened my eyes. It was like, dude, do you want to go down this road? Because I, I was like, no, I don't want to. This is not what I want. But here I am. So clearly I made, I've made a bunch of decisions to get here that are mine, that I've got to own. And so like that was, that girl really was, and, and I'm not criticizing her, man. She obviously had her own issues to work, to work through. Now I can, I didn't really understand the psychology of a girl who, who wanted that. Now I do. And it's like, it's kind of sad in a lot of ways. I'm not blaming her. She didn't do anything wrong. But like, um, that really was like a dark moment for me when I realized what I had created in my own life through my own decisions. Right. And so that was really one of the moments where I was like, okay, like I'd already kind of like known I was kind of done with writing about drinking and hooking up. I was tired of it. It was at some point it just becomes tedious. Right. And so like, I was like, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. But then I kept, you know, you can say like, I've never been, let's, let's take a good example, alcoholic. Right. I've known a lot of people who've dealt with that and, ah, oh, well, I'm going to stop drinking or I'm only going to have a few glasses of wine or I'm going to whatever. And you can say I, I should drink less, but until you actually drink less or stop drinking, you're just saying it, right? So I, I had said, yeah, I'm going to change. I don't like this anymore for a while. I hadn't actually changed my behavior. And that was the trigger. And then that was when I really started seriously taking responsibility and accountability for who and what I had become. And looking at it and saying, is this what I want? And the answer was no from almost all of it, right? Especially because, think about it, man. I was rich. I had sold millions of books at that point. I didn't work. I didn't have to work. I was in amazing shape. I, I forget what I was, 34 at the time. Like I had 8% body fat or something like whatever. Physically, externally, everything in my life was amazing. And I was a little bit more happy than when I was poor and broke and anonymous, but not much like 10% happier. Right? And so it's like, how, when I was poor and broken and honest, I'm like, well, if I can just like, I would, my best case scenario was imagining something that was not even half as good as what I had. And so I had so far outstripped anything that I could ever, that I was dreaming of. And I was nowhere near what I thought I would be in terms of how I felt. And so that was when I really had to take stock and understand the problem was me. There's no problem outside of me. The problem is me. And it is my mindset and it is my emotional state. It is how I am looking at myself 
how I'm looking at the world, what I'm taking responsibility for, what I'm not taking responsibility for. And so I started therapy. That was a turning point for Tucker. In leaving behind the old frat tire persona that he had since his 20s, he was able to transition into a more introspective, mature version of himself. So how did he do it? I started in psychoanalysis, which is a form of talk therapy. It took me, man, I went through 20 therapists before I found one who could work with me, right? It was like dating almost, dude. I can't tell you how many therapist first eight quotes I went on. Finally found a good one or one good for me. And then like, that was like, a whole journey, man, and like uh, very hard. I, uh, in the meantime, I'm trying all kinds of other therapeutic modalities as well, yoga, meditation, all this other stuff. And like talk therapy worked great, man. I went four times a week for four years. Like I was serious. Psychoanalysis is like a very serious in-depth form of talk therapy. And it gave me an amazing map to my, my emotions and my psyche. And it, it worked. It got me, helped me really understand who I was and where I was. The problem is like, I can give you the best map ever made of Manhattan, but it's nothing like walking the island, right? So I wasn't really feeling my emotions, right? I just was thinking about my emotions. They're very different things. And so I tried a lot of other things to kind of connect with myself and my body. Nothing really worked for me until I started on psychedelic medicine. That was a game changer, dude. MDMA therapy. Uh, which obviously is still not legal, but will be. It's in stage three clinical trials. Um, I just kind of found a way around those things because that's the type of person I am. Broke me open, man. And like that, I've been doing that for the last two and a half years. Uh, various forms of psychedelic therapy, uh, either with psilocybin or LSD or MDMA. Those are the three main modalities that I've used. I feel like I've grown more in the last two and a half years than I did maybe the last the eight before that. It's been like amazing and everything in my life has taken off because of it. My, I had already, you know, like I, uh, my marriage is 10 times better. I'm a 20 times better father. My company's doing incredible. Everything in my life is way better than it used to be. And more importantly, I feel way better. I show up better, like not perfect at all. Like I still have a lot of work to do. But God damn, man, like when I think that's why I said earlier, you were asking a lot of hard questions for me. Like, what was it like when you were because it's like I'm so far away from that person now. Sometimes it's hard to get back into that head, that headspace of 20 or 15 or even 10 years ago. At 35, I was just really starting my therapeutic journey. I knew nothing and thought I knew everything at 35. Now I know something, but realize that what I know is so minuscule compared to what I don't that like I've kind of, I feel like I've just started in a weird way. So this person, this woman who's been an MDMA, she's a psychotherapist in New York city and she's been treating people with MDMA for like 20 years. And so she, it's, you know, it's been illegal the whole time. MDMA was scheduled, uh, was put under schedule one classification, I think in 1984 or something like that. And um, it, it had been used legally before that and with amazing results. And it got caught up in all the whole dare, Nancy Reagan, drug war hysteria. And so um, got classified under Schedule 1. So a whole class of psychotherapists just kept doing it, but doing it illegally to great risk, at great risk for themselves. And um, she decided three years ago or four years ago to write a book. And she found us in my company. And did a book with us of 40 case studies of people who've done MDMA therapy and what happened. And these people are like war veterans and rape victims and incest survivors. And like the, some of them are just like housewives or dudes, right? But like all across the spectrum. And the stories are amazing, which we're seeing now. The clinical data is so off the charts amazing. This is already in state street clinical trials. It's going to be legalized very soon. In America, three years probably max. It might be legalized for prescription use in Australia next month, actually, because the, the clinical data is so insane off the charts. But she uh, wrote, the, wrote a book about this, and then I found her through that book and scheduled a session. Because And someone in my company did a session with her, and I saw the results in him and the change in him. Like, it was crazy. I saw it. Like, because I knew him before, and I knew him after. I'm like, how are you the same person? It's it, like... It was like he did 10 years of therapy in a week. And so um, I scheduled a session. And long, long story short, I showed up to her place, you know, do the whole song a day. I, 
Google Tucker Max MDMA. There's a 9,000 word article on Medium. I wrote about this. But the point is, when that medicine hit me, when I felt it, truly felt it, took about 45 minutes. When, it, when I felt it, the first thing I thought was, oh my God, I didn't realize I could love this much. It was an overwhelming, in the most positive way, feeling of love. Like I had no idea how disconnected from my emotions I really was. And then the next thought was, oh my God, I have to share this with everyone I love. That was like literally one of the very first thoughts was the people I want everyone I love. I want to share this opportunity. If they do it or they don't, it's up to them with everyone I love because this is what it feels like to be human. And um, this, it was like the fullest expression of, human, of my humanity I'd ever felt. And what's crazy is, man, like as I've done, you know, I've done quite a bit of MDMA therapy over the last three years or two and a half years. I, I, I'm using less and less because it's just a tool, man. It, it's not, it unlocks uh, who you are. It doesn't create something that's not there. It's the weirdest thing. And so as I've done more and more, I actually use less and less. It's the op- Most times it's like, oh, use drugs. You have to use more and more to get a high. I'm actually going the other way. 200 milligrams my first time, I'm down to like 120 per session now. And I can get a lot of the effects without medicine now, like a lot of the, the sort of things, the processing stuff. But dude, it was just, here's the thing, man, is to answer your question, why did I share this, right? Because I know a lot, like I said, I know a lot of famous people and rich people and whatever, fancy people who are doing this now and seeing incredible impacts. And... I'm not trying to say this judgmentally of them. I couldn't look myself in the mirror if I knew about this magic. And I mean that not literally. But if I knew this secret to such happiness and such contentment and such uh, wisdom and did not share it. Whatever anyone else wants to do is on them. But um, I have found something that helped me more than anything else I tried. Uh, to really discover myself, come home to myself. Uh, like the whole point of everything, everything we're doing, right? Everything everyone does is about getting to this feeling and this state, right? And then figuring out how to get closer to that and then eventually maintain it or something close, right? Which I've done, like I'm getting better and better too. And how do you not share that, man? It's like if I discovered penicillin, I would share it with the world, right? If I discovered electricity, I would share it with the world. I didn't discover MDMA. I didn't discover MDMA for therapy. I just was one of the earlier people to rediscover it for myself. And so I decided to share that with a lot of people because I knew a lot of people, I could be a voice that would bring this to a lot of people. And it's, it's what's happened, man. It's crazy to me how many hundreds and maybe thousands of people at this point have tried this therapy because they read my article or it was one of the things that, that led them to do it. I get emails all the time, people. It's, like, it's actually kind of mind-blowing. Like, I used to get emails like, oh, yeah, your books were amazing. Like, thank you. Like, I laughed so much and partied. And it was like, cool. It was entertainment. Like, it was fun. Now I get emails like, oh, my God, you saved my life. And I'm like, I didn't do anything but write an article, man. Like, I'm not your guide. I didn't get you any MDMA. I didn't do all the work. Because, listen, you don't just take MDMA and all of a sudden your life's great. Dude, it's hard, man. I always tell people things get harder before they get easier. So, like, for me, all kinds of really dip, all the stuff we were talking about earlier, the questions you asked me, right? All the dark stuff, all the stuff I hated about my life, I didn't like about myself, all this deep trauma that I had repressed, all that shit comes up. And it's fucking awful, man. It's the worst. Yeah, like there's a reason, you know, I tried to bury my life in alcohol and women and then success and money because if you don't, you then have to stop and face all this stuff, right? But the way that you get through it is you actually have to stop and face it. And what MDMA does is it makes it much easier to stop and face it and it makes it, it, it helps you feel like you can. You can always, it's just, it's, it's just a tool. Dude, it's been utterly game-changing for me. Tucker has always been a very open and transparent person, so I asked him to tell us the real story of how he got started in the publishing business and developed his own company into what it is today. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like the most basic entrepreneur story. I, I was at like an entrepreneur dinner and like this woman was like, been trying to write a book for 10 years. Can't do it. You know, family, business. She's, she was a really successful entrepreneur. She's like, you know, I can't find the time. How do I get this out of my head? And I was like, are you asking me how to write a book without writing it? And she's like, yeah. And so like an asshole, I start lecturing her about hard work, right? And she's like, dude, are you, are you a real entrepreneur? I'm like, of course. She's like, no, because a real entrepreneur would help me solve my problem. They wouldn't lecture me about hard work. And I was like, fuck, because she's totally right. And so I got obsessed with the idea and then basically built a process to get a book out of someone's head without them having to learn how to write a book. Right. But it was still completely their words, their ideas, their voice, not ghostwriting in a traditional sense. And so it ended up working and wrote this great book with her. And I just did it as like a fun project, not thinking it would be anything other than a fun project. Like I literally was trying basically to undo the embarrassment I, I had uh, made for myself by, call, by saying she was trying to avoid hard work when really I was being a, an elitist jackass. She referred a bunch of people to us and then like I talked about it on a podcast and then like all of a sudden I literally was passing this work off to a friend of mine, like just as a side freelance thing. And he's like, dude, I've signed $250,000 of <laughs> business in the last month. I think we might have a company here. And I was like, oh, okay. So that was like 2014, August of 2014 or so. We kind of really got serious about it. So we're now what is six and a half years in? We're now 60 full-time, 200 something, 250 part-time, something like that. We've done well into the eight figures in revenue. We had a massive year this year, dude. Like I, I hate to talk about that because like I know COVID's been like not been good for a lot of people. It's been amazing for us. You know, a lot of people stuck at home. A lot of people starting to realize, you know, I got a book in me, all this sort of stuff. So it really has. Like our, our we we hired a lot of people this year. We expanded very rapidly this year. It's been incredible. And then the, we do, we've done so many. Like your book's fantastic. We did Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, which was a ma- one of the biggest books to come out in the last 10 years. Tiffany Haddish's book, Last Black Unicorn. We did Dan Sullivan's books, Nassim Taleb's, the Nobel Prize Committee did a book in America. We've done so many huge, 750 books in in under seven years. I think more, close to 800 published now. We've got another thousand in process at least. We're like a big, dude, I had to hire a real CEO. You know Javon very well. Like he's helped you with stuff. I'm not even the CEO of my company anymore, man. Like I stepped away like five years ago. The company got way too big for me and he's been a baller. He's the reason we've succeeded. So that I was going to ask you because through our mutual friend, he wanted me to ask you on this podcast who the greatest CEO walking the earth was. Well, if he keeps working hard, one day it could be JT or Javon. <laughs> yeah, so so just so your audience, like he used to go by JT, but now Javon, uh, his given name, born uh, name was Javon. And uh, uh, no, he's amazing, man. Like uh, I hired him to replace me and got a little bit of equity. We now own the same percentage of the company because he's so outperformed. I was basically like, what do you want? You can ask for just about anything and I, I'll be cool with it because you have done so much and are so amazing. Anything you would want would be fair. So yeah, he he owns as much of the company as I do now. <laughs> Seriously, we own the exact same percentage. I think that's really interesting. What would you recommend? I mean, if there's a, a CEO or a founder who's listening that may be struggling to let go or get out of you know his or her way, like what, what would you say to them? There's not blanket advice for this. There is who's the person, what's the situation, what do you want to do? I would start by asking myself questions. The first question I would ask is, do I like my life right now or not? If you like your life, ignore the rest of the questions, period. If you don't, then the next question is, what do you not like about it, right? Because for me, when I was trying to, we got to about two, two and a half million in sales when the wheels started to come off. Like that's when we had like, I mean, we got there with only like 10 employees, right? Now we had a ton of freelancers and part-time. That's when really we started to like have real process problems. And like having a great idea for a company and being able to turn that great idea into a functioning product are skills and they're very important skills, but they are totally different skills than taking a functioning company and scaling it. They are literally, I think they're almost unrelated skills. I can hardly think of anyone I've ever met who can do both. 
There are some people. They are very rare, though. People who are really good at identifying market inefficiencies and creating a product to satisfy those inefficiencies, those people are very valuable. That's kind of like what a pure entrepreneur is, right? Or a pure creative, maybe. Like uh, we, my company actually has three, we call Javon a founder now. So there's me, Javon, and Zach. We divide it three ways. There's zero to one. That's literally go from nothing to a really good idea. I'm usually the best at that. Then there's like one to 10, which is turning that idea into a functioning product that like people are buying and are happy with at any level. Zach tends to be the best at that. He's really good at that. And obviously, Javon and I, each of us are can have stuff to contribute at each level. But I'm best at zero one. Zach is best at one to ten. And then there's ten to a thousand or ten to infinity. That's Javon. That's where you've got product. You've got a functioning product with product market fit. Now, how do you? You're selling it at units of ten, whatever. How do you sell it at units of a hundred, and then a thousand, and then ten thousand, and a million? That's a whole different set of problems. And he is world fucking class at that. If I'm thinking of how do I think up a product, that's a fundamentally different thing than how do I structure, you know, how do I structure a hiring process? They're unrelated. They have nothing to do with each other. But founders have, so many entrepreneurs and founders have this idea that if I'm good at one thing, I should be good at the other things, which is not true. And they also have the idea that, that they've got to stay CEO because it's the high status position. I would argue that that's, yeah, whatever. Status is a weird thing. In my life, the dominant question for me is, has always been, how do I, not how am I happy? How do I find real contentment? And for me, it was letting go of things that I'm not good at and I didn't like doing. So that meant not being CEO. And so right now, it's so funny. Zach and I, don't actually have roles in Scribe anymore. Like Javon runs the company. He has five executive, a five-person executive team. Zach and I are not on it that report directly to him that each run their own department, you know, author marketing, whatever, sales, uh, you know, uh, book writing, book publishing, et cetera. We're not in the executive meeting because I am building a whole different product line, really kind of, I'm zero to one on a product line. And Zach is, uh, he's actually zero to one in a different product, whole different product. He's pretty good at zero to one too. And so like, we're both building whole new arms of the company on our own islands. And it's fucking amazing because we have a whole company to draw resources from that we don't have to manage or worry about or think about. We just are off on islands doing the things we love to do. And by the way, we are right now, we have like five product lines at Scribe. Zach and I built all of those, and now other people run them, and we're building more things. And then as soon as we get them to a certain level, someone else is going to come, come in and take it over, scale it, whatever. And so that really, really works well for us. I love it, dude. I have built a life that I now really, really like, and I'm getting to love. There's still a few things I got to work on, uh, mainly in myself before uh, I can honestly say I love it. But um, I let go of the status and I let go of what I thought I needed to do and instead focused on what I wanted and then built that. I love it. And as we come to a close, Tucker, I ask this question at the end of every podcast. So you don't have to overanalyze the question, but this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Man, I overanalyze everything. So I'm gonna, what does being a game changer mean to you? Right now, the most game-changing thing I can think of is to genuinely think for yourself. Almost no one does. Virtually no one. Like, go look at Facebook right now. Everyone's arguing, uh, whatever. Like, pick any argument. It doesn't matter, right? Trump's a hero. Trump's a Hitler. Like, neither of them are thinking for themselves. They've been captured by an ideology. And they're, they're both non-player characters. Truly. It's not just one side or the other, right? If you are waving a MAGA flag or you are waving a BLM flag, you are not thinking for yourself. Neither one of you are, period, right? And so, but like, so it's, it's easy to look at those people and say, okay, they're just mindless automata. But then there's, or automatons. And then there's the ones above them who think, well, I think for myself. It's like, mm, do you really? If you really want to be a game changer right now, the thing to do 
and it's hard, it's so hard, is to really, really begin to question everything you think is true. It doesn't mean it's not true, but to really think, what are my assumptions? First off, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Whose ideas am I holding, right? Like if you're a Catholic, you are holding someone else's belief system. And maybe you've decided it's right and you agree with it. That's cool. But at least understand, be explicit about I have adopted this group's belief system. And so with all the contradictions and the problems and whatever, and I've decided to adopt that as mine. Okay, cool. Then at least recognize that, right? And 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 it's limitations. If you can do that, that puts you way ahead. But if you really want to be a game changer, I would start to actually question what you think reality is. And because I will tell you, man, over the last two and a half, three years ago, I thought I had a really good grasp on reality. And I could look around and find all the fucking proof I wanted. I was rich. I was famous. I had a hot wife. I had a successful company, blah, 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 right? How can you argue with me? And then I started doing psychedelic therapy and I realized, oh shit, almost nothing I thought was true is actually true. There were a few things I was that I thought was were true that were true, but very few. I'm at the point now, man, like I definitely don't have all the answers. I definitely don't know what complete truth is in no way, shape or form. But I do know that I am not accepting anyone else's reality as mine. Or at least I think I am. It's hard, dude. It really is. But that is, I'm at least making the best effort I can to genuinely think for myself and to genuinely look at things from multiple different angles and to try and figure out, even if I can't figure out what actual truth is, because I'm not sure humans are even able to perceive genuine truth, but to figure out, okay, let me try and understand what's really going on here as best I can in this moment. Most people don't. Most people just are like, oh yeah, CBS said this or Fox said this, or Trump said this, so that's the truth. You want to be a game changer, genuinely think for yourself. I want to give a huge thank you to Tucker Max for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me is that when it comes to fame and notoriety, oftentimes there's a price to be paid. Be prepared for the public to have an image of you that may be completely different from who you really are. At that point, your level of self-awareness becomes more important than ever. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Tucker Max, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with John Rulin, best-selling author of Giftology. A gift by its very nature is recipient focused. And there's so many times in business, we make everything about us. And we can flip that and say, what would they really want? Our lives and our relationships flourish because we're actually putting them first versus our own ego and our own pride. And that's hard. But when you can do that, whether it's an engagement or whether it's for your best client, like relationships shift and change when you flip the script. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. 